0: And we're going to be looking this morning, Matthew 27 uh, verses 32 through verse 38. So Matthew 27 beginning at verse 32, listen now once again to the reading of God's holy word. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and another on the left. I think the Lord has blessed you on this His holy word. O oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for the gift that You have given to us in Your Word. We thank, we're thankful that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we consider this passage this morning, we pray, Lord, that You would give us a great, uh, deeper appreciation for Your Word your entire world, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how our precious Savior came to fulfill what was written about him long ago, and that you would truly give us understanding and insight here, and that as we consider these things, as your word goes forth, we pray that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you read through the various gospel accounts, uh, in particular the, the final week of Jesus' life leading up to and including his, uh, his resurrection from the dead, it's really hard to escape just how often prophecies that were made long ago in the Old Testament are brought to fulfillment. And as we've already seen in our study of Matthew's Gospel, there are numerous times where Matthew says something like that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, and then goes and and he quotes some Old Testament passage. And of course, there are many other uh, numerous occasions where there are just allusions to the Old Testament, uh, not direct quotations, but just uh, references or allusions, again, to note that Christ is come fulfill, has come to fulfill these things. Now, of course, there are numerous um, we find these fulfillments all throughout uh, the Gospels, um, and yet they seem to be greatly concentrated around this last week with Christ's suffering, death, and His resurrection. In fact, the prophecies that are fulfilled around the suffering and death of Jesus far outweigh those regarding His birth. I mean, you I wonder, why is this? Well, because the suffering of Christ, His atoning death on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead on the third day are the foundational events by which our salvation is secured. Now certainly the incarnation of the Son of God is, is also essential. You see, Jesus wasn't born to be admired as a little baby in a manger. He was born and became flesh so that He might dwell among us, become a man, and suffer and die on the cross for our sins. The miracle of Christ's birth actually means nothing if Jesus never died on the cross for our sins, the writers of the Gospels certainly understood this, which is why uh, they really devote a relatively little time to uh, to Christ's birth. With uh, John and and Mark not even really referring to it at all, but then all the Gospels spend a significant portion of their time on the events of this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, in our passage this morning, we see the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures continues as Jesus is crucified. And what's most striking here, again, is is how the finest details of what Jesus endured for us at this time were all things which God revealed long ago through His prophets in the Old Testament. Now not only does this help authenticate that Jesus truly was who he, he claimed to be, that he'd come uh, as, the, uh, as the Messiah, uh, as the anointed one, as the uh, suffering servant of the Lord, but it also really should cause us to really marvel and to give thanks for the awesome wisdom and perfection of our great God and Savior. Because all these things, both in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament, are written for our edification and for our instruction, but especially they're written for our salvation. that We would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ who was crucified according to the Scriptures. And the first fulfillment that we see is a very small detail. That's mentioned in the beginning in the first part of verse 32 now as they came out that's it now, it seems to be pretty vague even uh, spurious uh, fulfillment but I assure you that that this is quite significant the reference is to coming out of the city coming out of uh, of the city of Jerusalem uh, that is away from where the people Lived and from where the the hustle and bustle of all all the activity was going out of the city outside the city walls to the place where Jesus would be crucified now from the the perspective of of the Romans, we might think that they would have uh, rather preferred to carry out the crucifixion within the city, maybe at a central location uh, as a deterrent for the people to keep them from uh, committing the crimes uh, that those who are being crucified had committed. But it's likely, especially with a reference in verse 39 to those who pass by, that these crucifixions took place along one of the main roads that were actually leading into the city. And so the effect would actually be about the same, especially during this time of the Feast of Unleavened Breads. The Passover had just been finished, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and many visitors were coming and going into the city, and they would walk by this place of where the crucifixion would happen. Now for the Jews, it certainly would be preferred that an execution would be done outside the city, because the Levitical laws relating to the uncleanness of a dead body. In fact, the law of Moses required that, uh, that those crimes that were punishable by, uh, by stoning, that those stonings had to take place outside the camp. And it was for that very reason, because of the uncleanness of the resultant dead body. And so even here, the fact that Jesus was executed outside the city walls was actually in accordance with the law of God. But there were a few other things that were appointed to be outside the camp, that is, away from where the people lived. And the first was the Tabernacle of Meeting, which Moses set up as uh, as the place where he would go and enter in to meet God face to face. This tent was set up outside the camp, first because of the Lord's holiness, but also because the people were fearful of the glory cloud of the Lord that would descend upon that tabernacle whenever Moses would enter in. Now the tabernacle meeting would later be replaced by the more permanent temple. And of course the temple would be a constant reminder to the people that the Lord was actually there dwelling in their midst. And so Jesus here, leaving the temple complex... And indeed, leaving the city itself was kind of symbolic of the glory cloud of the Lord departing from the temple and departing from the midst of the people. And this was a symbolism made complete when the temple veil was torn in two at the moment of Christ's death. And then, of course, later when the temple was completely destroyed. And of course, you remember back in the Old Testament, I believe it was uh, uh, Jeremiah the prophet uh, had the vision of the glory cloud of the Lord lifting up off of the temple uh, and departing, the glory, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple uh, as a picture of the Lord leaving, uh, abandoning the city uh, when, as the, the coming destruction uh, from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians at the time of the captivity. Well, here we see this departing of the glory of the Lord when Jesus, who was the fullness of the glory of the Lord, leaves the city and goes outside the camp, even as Moses did, to meet the Lord, even where he would commit his spirit into his father's hands. But there's another key Old Testament appointment that took place outside the camp. And we find this in Leviticus 16 verse 27 in reference to the Day of Atonement. And on that Day of Atonement, we'd have the, the blood would be sprinkled, the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on the altar, or uh, excuse me, on the, uh, inside the, the most holy place. But then the bull for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, "...shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal, because it is a sin offering." And so on the one day year that the sacrifice was offered for the sins of all the people, the blood again was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the ark in the most holy place, the, the fat was uh, was trimmed and was burned on the altar in front of the tabernacle or the temple, but then the bull and the goat that were offered for sacrifice, the actual sin offering, was then burned outside the camp. And so this is why Jesus wasn't crucified in the temple where we might expect sacrifices to be made. Because the offering for sin for all the people, the offering that was offered to the Lord, the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering for this, uh, the offering of sin was offered outside the camp. And this is precisely the connection made between Christ's crucifixion outside the city and and the sacrifices for sin made outside the camp that the writer to the Hebrews makes. And in Hebrews 13, verse 11, where we read this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. And so Jesus Christ is crucified outside the camp as a sin offering for his people. Thus his coming out of the city was in fulfillment of the scriptures. Although not a fulfillment of the scriptures as Jesus has let out now with Simon of Cyrene, of course, bearing... Uh, His cross for him, as we considered last time, Jesus is led to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull. Golgotha. The very sound of the place seems very ominous and, and dreadful. Golgotha was the Hebrew word, which Matthew translates us for he, us here as place of a skull. And, and there's a lot of speculation about this place. Uh, some think that it was a hill or a rock formation that was outside the city that was kind of in the shape of a skull. And others contend that it was where the Romans would leave the skulls of those criminals whom they executed, and that there was maybe a pile of skulls there, although that was probably unlikely. The Jews would not have taken very kindly to that again because of... The constant presence of uncleanness that close to the city. And so there's nothing in the biblical record, though, that indicates what this place was. Most likely it was just simply the place where crucifixions occurred, and the reference to the skull is simply a signifying of it's a place of death. Golgotha was the place that Jesus was crucified. But strangely, you don't hear of churches or Christian institutions being called Golgotha, right? Golgotha Baptist Church or Golgotha Presbyterian Church. And you certainly don't hear songs about Golgotha. It would be even hard to find a word to rhyme with, with it. Well, instead, we often hear the word Calvary. Now, Calvary. Uh, comes from the Latin word for skull, calvaria, and actually in Luke's account, at least in the, uh, in the King James Version, uh, is where we find the word Calvary. And Calvary, well, that certainly sounds a lot better than Golgotha. But in some ways, at least it's kind of my thoughts on it, in some ways it kind of sanitizes the place of crucifixion making it sound a little sweeter and palatable than the the truly terribly horrific place that it was. Golgotha seems much more fitting. And so if we ever daughter our congregation, we can call it Golgotha. Well, this is the place where Jesus was taken outside the camp to be crucified in fulfillment of the scriptures. And once they arrived at that place of execution, perhaps just before they nailed Jesus to the cross, we read in verse 34 that they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when they had tasted it, or when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. Now it's unclear here who the they refers to: uh, the soldiers or someone else. Now, if it was the soldiers, uh, some contend that this was but another attempt at mocking and humiliating Jesus. Of course, they knew that that with all the blood loss and the exhaustion of what he's already endured and what they have subjected him to, that he would be pretty thirsty. And so they gave him sour wine that has been made bitter, only making his thirst worse. And so again, it maybe was a way to mock him. But Jesus refuses. But it's been more commonly accepted that this was a traditional practice of the Jews Somewhat uh, based on uh, Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7, which says this, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Now typically the women of Jerusalem would prepare this wine mixed with myrrh, and and Mark is the one who tells us that it was mixed with with myrrh as a mercy for those who are about to be executed. And of course though the taste would be quite bitter. The combination uh, would have some kind of a medicinal effect of numbing the pain. Both the existing pain from, from the scourging that had been received. As well as the coming excruciating pain of crucifixion. But here Jesus refuses to drink. Desiring rather to be fully conscious and aware of what was happening. Thus again, we see him fully submitting himself to the Father's will, so that he might take on the full impact of the wrath and curse of God that we that would be poured out upon him as he greatly suffers for our sins. But even this offering of bitter wine was in fulfillment of the Scriptures for telling. Uh, uh, the suffering of our Lord the psalmist sang that we just sang earlier in Psalm 69 verse 21 they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink again another small detail of Christ's suffering foretold in the Old Testament has now been fulfilled but it's also interesting to note here that myrrh if you recall was one of the expensive gifts that was brought by the wise men of the east to honor the birth of Jesus the Messiah, right? gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But now at the end of his life, myrrh plays a very different role, and yet this time the gift is refused. Well then, the greatest event in all of human history is here plainly stated by Matthew in verse 35, then they crucified him. In the Greek, it's only two words having crucified. The description of the actual crucifixion is surprisingly brief, especially compared to the more lengthy descriptions that we have of the mockings and the humiliations that he received. And again, Matthew simply states the fact of the matter Jesus Christ was crucified. Now certainly for Matthew's original audience, they needed no further descriptions uh, to the fact that everyone during that time knew all too well what crucifixion meant and what it entailed. Though other nations at the time made use of crucifixion, the Romans kind of perfected it. They perfected it to produce the maximum pain and suffering. The most possible with the greatest degree of humiliation for the victim. It's been said that those who have been crucified have died a thousand deaths. And the Romans primarily used crucifixion to to execute slaves. And those who, are committed, who have committed the most serious crimes or who dared to rebel against the empire. And of course you remember that rebellion and murder were the crimes for which Barabbas had been condemned. Remember that this cross was originally made for Barabbas. And as we mentioned before, with passers-by coming and going from the city, crucifixion was a public execution to serve as a deterrent for others. But this also added to the humiliation of the one being crucified, because the condemned would often be stripped of their clothing and be shamefully exposed. It would then be nailed to the cross and the nails were likely driven through uh, the hands like at the wrists. And then the feet were nailed either through the forefoot with the legs crossed or through the heel with the feet on each side. Once the cross was raised up, it was then basically a death of slow suffocation. It was excruciating pain. Indeed, this very word excruciating has its origin in the Latin phrase ex crux, that is, out of the cross. The suffering was extreme. And there would be severe inflammation and and swelling of of the wounds around the nails and unbearable pain from uh, torn tendons and pain and discomfort from uh, the strained position of the body. A throbbing headaches and a, and again a burning thirst adding to this pain of course what was already been inflicted from the scourging and the great loss of blood it truly was a horrible way to die and eventually unable to support the weight of the body any longer due to extreme exhaustion the one crucified would just kind of slump no longer able to Lift themselves up and lift off the pressure off their lungs. And so they couldn't breathe anymore. And they would eventually suffocate. It would be a very, very similar experience to drowning, except there was no water. This is what Christ our Saviour endured for us on the cross. And yet this too was in fulfilment of the scriptures. In Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. When Jesus was crucified, this portion of this psalm was fulfilled. And speaking of Psalm 22, as Matthew continues his account, we find yet another fulfillment of this psalm. Now usually there would be uh, about four soldiers uh, with a centurion overseeing them. Uh, and since there were others that were crucified with Jesus, there may have been a four for each uh, victim, as it would kind of take some, uh, some work to kind of hold them in place and, and set the nails in place and also then to lift up the, the cross. What well, was within Roman law for the executioners to claim the minor possessions of the executed man? Well, of course, at this point, they wouldn't really have had much except their clothing. And so with Jesus, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what would each take. And typically, there probably would be four pieces of some kind of headgear, like a a turban of some kind, maybe sandals, uh, the belt, and then just the the outer garment. But according to John's account, Jesus had another garment, a, a seamless tunic. That it was made from one piece of material. And so they didn't want to tear that up. It was a nice tunic. And so instead of tearing it, they cast lots for it to see which of them would take possession. And it's in this, again, minor detail, the soldiers' actions, that we see yet again another fulfillment of the Scriptures. Matthew notes in verse 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And here Matthew is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 18. Now on the surface, the crucifixion of Jesus was really nothing different or special. Jesus was crucified the the, the same way that thousands of others were were crucified before and after him. And we see this in the somewhat nonchalant attitude of the of the soldiers in verse thirty six as they simply once they kind of get him in place, they just sit down and they watch him. Now standing guard at crucifixion was was likely to prevent some bold some some bold person to from intervening uh, and seeking to rescue the one that was condemned, and so the the soldiers were there to keep watch. But here they just Matthew says that they just sit down. And they watch. Imagine these soldiers just sitting there. Watching Jesus and these other two writhe in pain. And eventually watching as the life slowly leaves their bodies. Seems callous and cold hearted. And likely they continue to mock and jeer. As Jesus and these other two suffered greatly. Brothers and sisters. Consider all this that our Savior endured for us. He was stripped naked and He was nailed to a cross. And He suffered great pain and humiliation. He did this so that we might have our shame and our sin covered by His perfect righteousness. And yet... This was God's plan and purpose for our salvation. That Christ would be crucified in such a way in fulfillment of the scriptures. Well, Matthew then describes the placard that was placed over his head and and those who were with him. And regarding the placard, it was customary again to, to post the crimes for which a person was being crucified. Not only to, again, bring further shame and humiliation to them... But again, also as a way to deter others from committing similar crimes. So, so here's the crime. Look, if you commit this crime, this is, this is going to be you. And that would certainly be a great deterrent. But for Jesus, remember, there was no crime. The only thing that they could come up with was, this is Jesus, the King of Jews. And, and John tells us that it was written in, in three languages, in, in Greek, and Latin, and Aramaic the three languages that were common at the time in that area. And this was likely Pilate's attempt to slight the Jews. Remember the Jews are the ones who who brought this charge uh, to Pilate about Jesus that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews and how can you have a rival king to Caesar? And that was their, their final push to get Jesus crucified and, and, and killed. But again, John 19, John writes this Complaint from the chief priest saying to Pilate do not write the king of the Jews but that he said I am the king of the Jews right so there's a big difference there if he just writes the king of the Jews well then people might think well he truly was the king of the Jews <laughs> but they wanted him to write it in such a way that this was what he claimed but again Pilate perhaps seeking to slight the Jews simply respond, what I have written, I have written. He wasn't going to change it. But again, note the irony here. The pilot may have thought it was a joke. "Ah, Look at this pathetic fellow, beaten and bruised. He's hanging across as a common criminal. This is the pathetic king of the Jews. But this charge, as we saw before with the taunts of the soldiers, this charge was very much the truth. Jesus was the King of the Jews. Indeed, not of the Jews only, but He was the King of all creation. But this King, who would ultimately gain the victory and reign over all nations, coming in power and glory to administer just judgment in the last great day, this King has been rejected by the people. Even the very ones He came to save from their sins. The psalmist declares in Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so the rejection of the the Messiah by the Jews as their king was in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And finally we consider those who were with Jesus when He was crucified. We know that He wasn't alone in this disgrace and shame. verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and another on the left. And here... Here was the king of the Jews, hoisted up for all the people to see, hoisted up perhaps, thinking, oh, look at this, his, his throne. This king sitting on his throne, nailed to his throne. But two robbers in the place of honor, one at his right and one at his left. Again, even the very setup was another great humiliation. Now the term for robbers here is the same for rebel and insurrectionist, And so it's very possible that these two who were crucified along with Jesus were friends of Barabbas. And again, remember Barabbas, that was his spot right in the center. But now Jesus has taken his place. Friends, even as he has taken our place when he died on the cross for our sins. And here we see yet another fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah 53, again that great passage that speaks about the suffering of our Lord in great detail. And each point clearly fulfilled as you read through the Gospel accounts. But in Isaiah 53 verse 12, we read this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. For our sakes, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted as a a criminal. The king of peace and righteousness. Will die the death of common thieves and rioters. Now, next to the incarnation, where Jesus took on human flesh, the Son of God took on human flesh, there is no greater way in which Jesus is described as identifying with us than here. That he was numbered with the transgressors. Because, friends, we we are the transgressors. We are the ones who have been born in sin and come forth from the womb speaking lies. We are the one who are in Adam. We are the transgressors of God's law. But God graciously made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, He identifies with us so that He might save us from our sins. Beloved of God, death by crucifixion was the most horrible and shameful way to die. Yet this was the way that God had planned for His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The shame that, were, that was a result of the first sin when Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in the garden, that shame that is now passed on to us as the descendants of Adam, this shame was placed on Jesus Christ at the cross of Golgotha. He was despised before men. The King of kings and Lord of all. The Savior of the world was crucified. But This is foolishness. And indeed it is to those who do not believe. As Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. To to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But it's through this foolishness that we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured this foolish and shameful death so that He could be identified with you in your sin and your misery. But remember also that you are transgressors and sinners before God. His enemies because you've broken His law. But even while you were His enemies, Christ died for you and was crucified for you. He took upon Himself your shame. He took upon Himself your sin. He took upon Himself the suffering and the humiliation that only you deserved. Christ endured all this So that He might offer you the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. This is His gospel. This is His good news. And He offers it even now to those who repent of their sins and who would call upon His name alone for salvation. Truly, if He will call in faith, He will listen. This great act of love should be ever so humbling for us. Christ died this humiliating death for us. He became naked so that we could be clothed in His righteousness. This is the gospel of Christ. And this is why we're called to preach Christ crucified. Yes, to some it's a stumbling block. And to others it's just foolishness. But it is the truth that has set us free from the condemnation of sin and death forever. Therefore, friends, if you claim this gospel truth as your own, don't keep it to yourselves. Indeed, may we all be enabled by God's Spirit to spread this gospel truth so that others may also be set free as well, and all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks. As we consider this passage, you know it's it's another dark and hard passage to consider all that that Christ, our Savior, endured for us, and yet we acknowledge that this was Your plan, and that You even gave these glimpses and hints of it thousands of years before, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, so that we might have hope, so that those in the Old Testament who could read with faith, could have the hope that one day the Messiah would rise up and would be the perfect sacrifice for their sins, even as we can now look back on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice and give thanks that His suffering and death was for us and for our sins. And so we praise You and thank You, Lord, for such a marvelous salvation. We can think that maybe there was some other way, but there really was no other way. Because in suffering all these things, Christ was truly identifying with us in our sin and our misery. And that He was bearing the full brunt of your just wrath and curse that we deserved because of our sin. And so, Father, may we be humbled by these things. May we truly rejoice and give thanks for your grace and your mercy toward us undeserving sinners that we are. And truly, may you give us boldness to even go forth from here and to be diligent to share this glorious gospel message to those who may be in need. And we know that some will it'll be a stumbling block and turn the way. Others will think it's just foolish. But we pray, Lord, that you would lead us to those who would, to whom it's been appointed that they may come to know you and be saved by your grace and your mercy through what Jesus has accomplished for sinners. And so we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon all these things. And we pray that especially your spirit would apply these these truths first to our own hearts. And then again, equip us to go forth with great boldness. So that we might live our lives to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.